I'm reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 66, beginning at the first verse. Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. I've been preaching a series of sermons on the Holy Scriptures, inspired, infallible, and inerrant. The Word of God is inspired. Every word of Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The words we have in Scripture are not the ideas of men, not the words of men. The Holy Spirit moved men to write the words that we have in Holy Scripture. It is infallible, meaning that the Bible can never be wrong about anything. It is inerrant. The Bible contains no errors, and it does not lead people into error. Human sinfulness may lead into error, but the Bible itself is without error, and when properly understood, always leads to truth and righteousness. Now, I preach that series of sermons to lead up to this sermon. If the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God, then we should reverence the Word of God. If you want to use the old term for reverence, we should fear the Word of God. We should honor the Word of God and have the deepest respect for the Word of God. In this series of sermons, I've labored to show you that the Bible contains the very words of God. And since these are the very words of God, God speaks to us directly in this book. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. These are the words of the Holy Spirit from Genesis to Revelation. When we read the Scriptures, Christ Himself is speaking directly to us. If that is the case, then what reverence should we have for the Word of God? In the text I read a moment ago, the Lord reminds the people of His majesty. Heaven is His throne. The earth is His footstool. He made everything in the entire universe. So how could anyone ever build a house or a temple of any kind that could contain Him? He is infinite, filling all things in heaven and earth. Seeing how majestic, powerful, infinite and exalted above all he is. We wonder how he could pay any attention to little microscopic specks like us. But God says that he does look upon a certain kind of people. He does look upon a certain group with his favor. There is a kind of person that he delights in. And there's a certain kind of person he will dwell with. That is the point of this passage. The heaven of heavens cannot contain God. There is no house, no temple you could build that would be big enough to contain Him. But He will dwell inside a person. What kind of person will He dwell with? Would you like to be that person? Well, you can be. Here's the person that God looks upon, that God will dwell within. Him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. 
This is the kind of person that God looks upon with favor, the one who trembles at his word. This person trembles at the word of God because he has a poor and contrite spirit. When he looks into the word of God, he sees how great, majestic, and holy God is, and he sees himself as small, insignificant, and sinful in the sight of God. And that knowledge causes him to tremble before such majesty and holiness. There's a group of ultra-Orthodox Jews called the Haredim. Estimates are that there are about 500,000 of them in the United States and about 500,000 in Israel. They get their name from the Hebrew word for tremble, haret. And that is the word used here in Isaiah 66 too. So this ultra-Orthodox group are known as those who tremble before God. Christians need to be known as those who tremble before the Word of God. If the Holy Scriptures contain the very words of God, then we should tremble before the Holy Scriptures when we read them and when they are read to us. In our form of worship, there is much reading of Holy Scripture because we have such reverence for the Word of God, because we have such reverence for Holy Scripture, because this is the Word of the Lord. If you read the history of the people of God down through the centuries, you will find that many of the saints read and studied the Scriptures on their knees. They read the Scriptures on their knees because they were reading it prayerfully. They were reading it with deep humility, knowing that those pages contained the very words of God Himself, and those words were powerful, searching, probing, transforming. Now, I'm not saying that you have to read the Bible on your knees, but when you read the scriptures, that should be the attitude of your heart, deep humility and reverence for the Word of God. Now, when people like myself preach a series of sermons like this on the Holy Scriptures, and when we go so far as to say that we should have a deep reverence for Holy Scripture, there are those who say, you are guilty of bibliolatry. You are making an idol of the Bible. You are worshiping a book rather than God. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Because we have a deep reverence for the Bible, because we love the Bible, does not mean that we make an idol of the Bible. If love makes us idolaters, then the whole human race is guilty of idolatry even when we love our spouses and our children. If love, honor, respect for the Bible is idolatry, then the 119th Psalm is nothing more than the rantings of the greatest bibliolater of all time. Listen to a few of his words in verse 16, I will delight myself in thy statutes. Verse 97, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 103, How sweet are thy words unto my taste. Yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. What a bibliolater the psalmist was. He loved the Word of God too much. He reverenced the Word of God too much. He made an idol of the Scriptures. I get so tired of those who deep down inside have no respect for the Word of God, warning people about the dangers of loving the Bible too much, of making an idol of the Bible. Listen. I've been going to church for 67 years. I've been preaching for 53 years. Never in all my life have I ever met anybody 
that I felt I needed to warn. I think you love the scriptures too much. You really need to cut back on your study of the Bible. I think you show too much respect and reverence for the commandments of the Lord. No, but I have had to give the opposite warning throughout my ministry. Why is it that you do not reverence and love the Word of God? Those of us who love the Scriptures are in no danger of making an idol of the Bible. But those who do not tremble before the Scriptures are guilty of trying to destroy the force of Holy Scriptures so that no one would ever tremble before it. That is why so many people are dangerous students of the Word of God. They look upon the Bible as a text to be dissected like some kind of secular text, like a novel or a poem. There's nothing more dangerous than someone who does not have a reverence for the Word of God to study the Word of God. And we have hundreds of those in our universities and seminaries. They study the Word of God constantly, but not to be humbled by it, not to tremble before it, not to be transformed by it. As a matter of fact, many study it just so that they can try to shred it, undermine its authority, so that people will be filled with doubt, unbelief, and continue living in rebellion against God. There are those who say that we are guilty of placing the Bible above God, Scripture above Christ. But what these people are trying to do is put a wedge between God and Scripture, to put a wedge between Christ and the Bible. As I stated in an earlier sermon, they do this so that they can invent their own ideas of God and Jesus and say, well, I don't believe that part of the Bible because my God wouldn't have done that. My Jesus wouldn't have said that. By doing this, they can dismiss any part of Scripture they want to reject. Those who say that we put the Bible in the place of Jesus, know that is not the case. What we are saying is that God is chosen to reveal Himself and His Son in this book. This is the vehicle, the means through which God reveals Himself to us. He doesn't reveal himself to us in dreams, visions, or our own fallen reason and imagination. He chose to transmit the truth about himself in this book. You may hear it said by many today, Christians don't have a relationship with a book. They have a relationship with a person, Jesus Christ. That is that same attempt to drive a wedge between Christ and the Bible. They fail to realize that the living Christ is made known to us in his living word, Holy Scripture. God tells us that we have fellowship with him by means of the words that he moved men to write. So what these people are trying to do is separate God from his word, separate Christ from his word. But how can you separate God from what he said? How can you separate Christ from his word? We do not worship the Bible, but we reverence the Bible because the Bible is the very Word of God, because the God we love and the Christ we adore is revealed in Scripture. And when we read Scripture, we are hearing His very voice. But people who have a low view of Scripture want to substitute their own subjective opinions about God to replace what God has revealed about Himself in this book, and that is genuine idolatry. J.I. Packer once wrote, Others tell us the final authority for Christians is not Scripture, but Christ, whom we must regard as standing apart from Scripture and above it.
they say that Christ is the judge of Scripture and we as his disciples must judge Scripture by him, receiving only what is in harmony with his life and teaching and rejecting all that is not. But Packer asks, who is this Christ, the judge of Scripture? Packer says that that Christ is not the Christ of the New Testament and of history because that Christ does not judge Scripture. He obeys it and fulfills it. Certainly, he is the final authority of the whole of it. Certainly, he is the final authority for Christians. That is precisely why Christians are bound to acknowledge the authority of Scripture. Christ teaches them to do so. A Christ who permits his followers to set him up as the judge of Scripture so that they can say, Christ would not have approved of this particular passage of Scripture or this teaching is a Christ of human imagination made in the theologian's own image, one whose attitude to Scripture is the opposite to that of the Christ of history. If the construction of such a Christ is not a breach of the second commandment, it is hard to see what is. In other words, if I invent my own Jesus who disagrees with certain parts of Scripture, I've broken the second commandment. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Packer goes on, It is sometimes said that to treat the Bible as the infallible word of God is idolatry. If Christ was an idolater, and if following his teaching is idolatry, the accusation may stand, not however otherwise. But to worship a Christ who did not receive Scripture as God's unerring word, nor require his followers to do so, would seem to be idolatry in the strictest sense. Those of us who reverence this book are not guilty of making an idol of the book. But those who do not receive Scripture as inspired, infallible, and inerrant are certainly guilty of making an idol of their own reason and imagination. We are not exalting the Bible over Jesus, but there are those who are certainly guilty of exalting their own reason above both Christ and the Bible. A Baptist scholar many generations ago used to say that an astronomer uses a telescope to see things he can never see without it. Would we say that the astronomer is guilty of worshiping the telescope? No, he uses the telescope because he could not discover the truth without it. We do not worship the Bible, but we firmly say that there are truths about God, truths about our Lord Jesus Christ, that we would never discover without it. And therefore, we reverence the book that God gave us, his own words to reveal himself. As John Stott once said, God has clothed his thoughts in words, and there is no way to know him except by knowing the scriptures. We can't even read each other's minds, much less what is in the mind of God. Therefore, the scriptures are absolutely necessary. Spurgeon has a sermon on Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In that sermon, Spurgeon discusses whether the phrase, word of God, refers to Jesus 
or to the scriptures. Or as he puts it, is this talking about the word of God incarnate or the word of God inspired? And Spurgeon says that we should just weave the two together because he says that Jesus, the word of God incarnate, is in the scriptures, the word of God inspired. He says that the reason the scriptures are living and powerful is because Christ is in the scriptures. So that many of the things that we say of Christ, the word of God incarnate, can be said of the written word. As a matter of fact, Christ and the scriptures are so linked together, it is impossible to divide them. In fact, they are now so linked together that it would be impossible to divide them. The people commit the grave sin of separating the revealer from his own revelation. The revealer is Christ, and the revelation through which he has chosen to reveal himself is Scripture. Spurgeon says, if you leave Christ out of it, you have left out its vitality and power. As I have told you, that we will not have Christ without the Word, so neither will we have the Word without Christ. If you leave Christ out of Scripture, you have left out the essential truth of God which it is written to declare. This inspired volume is that gospel whereby you have received life unless you have heard it in vain. It is this gospel with Jesus within it, Jesus working by it, which is said to be living and effectual and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Then in words that no doubt many of our liberal scholars would say is bibliolatry, Spurgeon said, the book, speaking of the Bible, the book has wrestled with me. The book has smitten me. The book has comforted me. The book has smiled on me. The book has frowned on me. The book has clasped my hand. The book has warmed my heart. The book weeps with me and sings with me. It whispers to me and it preaches to me. It maps my way and holds up my goings. It was to me the young man's best companion, and it is still my morning and evening chaplain. It is a living book, all over alive. From its first chapter to its last word, it is full of a strange mystic vitality which makes it have preeminence over every other writing for every living child of God. Oh, the majesty of the Word of God! They charge us with bibliolatry. It is a crime of their own inventing, of which few are guilty. To me, the Bible is not God, but it is God's voice, and I do not hear it without awe. Once again, Spurgeon has brought out why we should tremble before the Holy Scriptures. The Bible is the voice of God himself. Christ is in this book, the living Christ, giving life to every word of this book so that it is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. In his essay on Holy Scripture, John Jewell, 1552-1571, the Bishop of Salisbury, has a section about how we should reverence God's word. He writes, Now let us consider with what fear and reverence 
we ought to come to the hearing or reading of the word of God. The angel of the Lord appeared unto Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, Exodus 3.2. When Moses turned aside to see, God said unto him, Come not hither, put thy shoes off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Shouldn't we read the word of God? Shouldn't we listen to the word of God with that kind of reverence? Do we really believe that whenever we pick up this blessed book, we are standing on holy ground? God is about to speak. Jewel goes on to say, Again, when God had appointed to speak unto the people from Mount Sinai, he said to Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready on the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. The word of the Lord is the bush out of which issueth a flame of fire. The scriptures of God are the mount from which the Lord of hosts doth show himself. In them God speaketh to us. In them we hear the words of everlasting life. We must be sanctified and wash our garments and be ready to hear the Lord. We must strip off all our affections. We must fall down before him with fear. We must know who it is that speaketh, even God, the maker of heaven and earth, God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, God, which shall judge the quick and the dead and before whom all flesh shall appear. When the people of Israel saw the manna in the desert, they said, what is this? So they reasoned of it when they took it up in their hands and beheld it. They asked one another what good it would do. The scriptures are manna given to us from heaven to feed us in the desert of this world. Let us take them and behold them and reason of them and learn one of another what profit may come to us by them. Let us know that they are written for our sake and for our learning and through patience and comfort of the Holy Scriptures, we may have hope. They are given us to instruct us in faith, to strengthen us in hope, to open our eyes, and to direct our going. The whole point of this series on Holy Scripture was this. I want you to love the Word of God. I want you to reverence the Holy Scriptures. I want you to tremble at the Word of God. For it is in this book where God speaks to us. I'll close with words from Spurgeon on this text from Isaiah 66 2, where he describes what it means to tremble before the Word of God. He says, The man in a right state for God to dwell in trembles at God's Word because he believes it to be all true. If you doubt God's Word, between God and you there is a disagreement a rupture, a quarrel, and God will never dwell in your soul. The trembler believes it to be all true, and therefore he trembles. As he reads the law, he says, your holy law condemns me. He trembles at the threatenings of that law, for he feels he deserves them to be fulfilled on him. And when the gospel comes and he receives it and rejoices in it, he trembles at it trembles at the love that looked upon him from all eternity, trembles that he should have nailed the Savior 
to the cross, trembles lest after all he should not be washed in the precious blood and he trembles after he is washed lest he should not walk as blood washed spirits should. These things are so high and sublime that he trembles beneath the burden of the glory that he should receive. He trembles at the promise, O Lord, he says, let that sweet promise be mine. And he trembles lest he should miss it, trembles at a precept lest he should misunderstand it or not carry it out in a proper spirit. O beloved, we must tremble at God's word. We know we shall enter heaven if we are believers in Jesus, but we should tremble lest by any means we should mar our evidence of being inheritors of that goodly land. We know the love of God will never cast us away. We know the eternal love will never reject those it has chosen, but we should tremble lest we abuse that grace. The more gracious the doctrines we hear and believe, the more we should tremble lest we should sin against such a gracious God. We go through the world trembling and rejoicing. Let us be those described in Isaiah, the poor, the contrite, who tremble at the word of God. Amen.